You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So Jay, it's almost July. How did this happen? (laughs) Way too fast. My director of finance handed me a couple weeks ago the Q2 financials like the preliminary stuff. And I went, wait, what, what month am I? Like, where are we? Yeah. (laughs) No, it's going so fast. So I don't know if you've experienced this, but we've experienced like a leveling off. We've been on such a high growth rate for so many years that when it goes down to something that the average company is still stoked about, it feels bad. (laughs) We're like, Ooh, this doesn't feel right. I'm not saying it's bad. It just doesn't feel right. Yep. And then once you start looking through the numbers, you're like, okay, we're okay. We just need to change our strategy because we've been in a high growth, fast growth strategy. Then you go, okay, now we need to pull back just a little bit, strategize, take machines offline for maintenance, that type of thing. We do regular maintenance, but like that deep dive PM type stuff. Yeah. And more importantly is to take people offline and say, hey, now you've been making this product or this component for years now, you've been using this fixture, this process, let's give you some margin to rethink this. And they're like, yes, please. This has been bugging me since 2020. Okay. Yeah. It's been a crazy road since 2020, a good crazy road. So that's what we're doing right now with these little leveling offs. It's certainly not receding like the news would have you believe, but no, it's been good. the speed at which we've been going this year and then the most recent slowdown, that's when you really get ahead in life and in business. It's when you sharpen your ax. And when you're in constant production, the natural tendency to, to overlook problems because you don't have time for them is totally amplified by, it's multiplied by the number of POs on your pending POs on your desk. You're like, I don't have time to fix that right now. We just have to run it. And it's like, well, yeah, you've only got three wheels on this car. You can keep driving it down the road and you'll be moving, but it'll be better if we stopped and put the fourth wheel back on this car. That's right. Yeah. Going to Paul Akers where he's always saying, fix what bugs you. And I'm not sure if that's exclusive to Paul Akers, but is that kind of a mantra around your place? It absolutely is. I say that and I remind employees of it often. And where I see the biggest disconnect, the thing we have to work on most is making the connection where when you find something that bugs you, you don't just file it away and go, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Because it's really easy if you're in the middle of something to file it away and go, I don't like that. And just this morning, I made a lean improvement during our 15 minutes of 3Sing in the morning. One of my employees who's on the shorter end of our employee range was emptying a particular trash can, which is in a break area, and there's a shelf on the wall. And it was just the right height that when he walked in, and rolled over there to grab that trash can, he clipped his head on the corner of the shelf Oof, and thanks. made a comment about it. And I'm like, has that happened before? He's like, yeah, I've hit that shelf a handful of times. And I'm like, we should totally put a rubber corner guard on that shelf. There's no reason for you to be doing that job when we know you've hit your head before. I wasn't aware until today, but he just moved on and had moved yeah. on from that however many times it had happened previously. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was vacuuming entryway rugs. I put the vacuum down and went and got some Kaizen foam and carved a little corner block and threw it on there and taped it in place just to try it out and Mm -hmm. see tomorrow when he empties the trash, if it makes a difference. But 
that muscle of, I see the problem, something bugs me. I can do something about it in the next five minutes. I'm going to, I'm going to jump on that right now. That is a muscle that people generally don't have because most of life doesn't allow them to work that way. That's right. Yeah. You know what I've faced in that type of scenario? So two principles we follow is the improvement ladder, which when you improve things, it's in this order, safety, quality, simplicity, speed. Yep. And then if you follow getting things done by David Allen, yep. the strategy there is if something pops into your head, if it's shorter than two, two minutes, minutes less. just go do it. Yep. If it's longer, then you delay it. You delegate it. You what, it's delete one of them. I love deleting. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. One of yeah. the, one of my favorite things in David Allen book is just him saying, deciding to not do anything about it and yeah. just jettison it is a legitimate path yeah. at any point. Okay, great. I didn't know if I had to cannibalize that, but I see actively making your mind inactive on that thought. Like you don't yeah. need to think about it actively. Stop thinking about it. But anyway, so in that scenario, padding it probably took you more than two minutes. Yeah. But it's so a it, safety issue. Yeah, it isn't. The David Allen two-minute thing, and we talk about two-second lean improvements, the rule is never literally, this thing must take two seconds. Yeah. The idea is that it's a relatively low time cost thing, and it's okay to make a quick and an intentionally iterative solution. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go sit on the mountaintop and think it all through and come up with the perfect final end-all be-all solution for this thing and then come back and implement it in all its complexity. Yeah. It's totally fine to just do a thing up front, try it out. And then if it works, great, iterate it. If it doesn't work, move on, yeah. try something different. And so, yeah, it took me probably four or five minutes to make that foam cap, but it's worth it. Yeah. I think that's the key to that David Allen principle. That's two minutes in principle, not in seconds. Yeah. And if it took you four minutes, but you improved it and you never have to think it over again, and it's a safer work environment, you just go do it. So what if it's four or five or 10 versus two, you got it done. It wasn't like you didn't have to think, you didn't have to draw it out in fusion or whatever. You, you just got it done. I've blended some of the David Allen stuff with Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. Mm. And in particular, he has a section in there on email and good and bad habits in email. One way to think about email is it's tennis. Anytime somebody hits the ball over the net at me, I want to get it back on their side of the court as quickly as possible. And the two-minute approach is like, oh, it's on my side. Bounce it back. We're playing hot potato. This email is in your inbox now. What that can end up doing is actually, even though each of those little instances is short, the overall time involved in handling the whole thing may stretch out to 8, 10, 12 emails over two weeks Mm -hmm. where this thing just keeps cropping up. And every time you whack-a-mole it, it takes 20 seconds, but it's lingering in the background. Like You send it out, it goes on a loop, and two days later, it comes back into your inbox. And what Cal Newport talked about was taking enough time to clearly think through even... The particular kind of email that he said, these are the worst, is when someone sends you an email and you forward it on to somebody else and say, what are your thoughts on this? Completely open-ended, no particular question, no decisive action response to take. 
And so Cal gave examples of emails that he wrote, even something as simple as scheduling a very short in-person meeting rather than saying, I'd love to get together. How does next week look? Emailing and saying, I'd love to get together for coffee at this location. I'm available on Thursday at 2 p.m. or on Friday at 3.30 or Saturday morning at 10. Which of these three times, which of these times would you like? And that way the person can get that email from you. And it takes maybe a couple minutes of checking your calendar, thinking it through, balancing out whatever else you have to work around. But you send that email, they send a response, and it's done. It's yeah. on the calendar at that point. Mm-hmm. Love and it. those kinds of communications where you are getting it right, getting it complete, it's so much better. And it gets those things out of my mental racetrack. They're not on the back stretch coming around again. They're done. They're off yeah. the course. So every year we review and we see what new states we have to start collecting sales tax for. Ah, uh, Nexus. Nexus, exactly. So at the beginning of the year, we reviewed it. We go, okay, we're adding X number of states. And one of my guys said, man, that means we have to update our terms and conditions. We should probably put it on the website. Yeah, absolutely. Someone suggested, why don't we just put we collect sales tax for the states that have nexus. And I'm like, yeah, that is a one and done thing that we add to our terms and conditions. But again, like empathy is big principle in the company. If I were the customer and I go and I'm checking out and I'm like, oh, do I pay sales tax? And I go to the terms and conditions and it says, yes, you pay, you pay you sales paid tax. You owe it. You're like, yeah, that doesn't help. So what that invites is an email or a call, which we don't want to do on a stupid question like, Do you collect sales tax? So yeah, it does create a little extra step every year. We update that one line of terms and conditions. Yes, California, New York, Texas, Florida, now like Kentucky, Idaho, and Wisconsin. So what if we have to do that every year or every six months or something like that? It completes the communication cycle. Yeah. And do you currently put a date or timestamp on that? As of this date, we collect sales tax in these areas. I don't think because, so. Why? Tell me more. Would, because if I was a customer, the number of websites that I look at where things are clearly out of date oh, and, got it. and stuff in their documentation doesn't actually match reality. If yeah. they're using a software like TaxJar or any of these other third-party things that calculate Nexus for you by tracking sales, yeah, those things update in real time. And if the company's website says, oh yeah, we collect Nexus in this state, in this state, in this state, I'm like, I'm not sure. I feel yeah. like I should still contact them to double check because that might be two years, three years old. Yeah. Okay. So every time we update our terms and conditions at the bottom of that page, it auto increments the date last updated on. So there's nothing that explicitly says this was last updated, but it does automatically say it at the bottom. So cool. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Makes sense. We had a a disconnect between our terms and conditions on our store page. So if you go to there's store.pearsonworkholding.com, that's the e-commerce out of the box package. And then you have our website, like our, what we call our company page, which I'm really trying to mend the two. We were going to do a straight up Shopify store, but it was so underpowered as far as the things we needed. And I didn't realize Shopify's approach is you just, you buy like your add-ons or packages or plugins, that type of yep. thing. We use a, what is it called? A product called Shift for Shop. I've used it since 2010. It's great. It's got a lot of great features and reporting. 
I'm not endorsing it. It's got problems as well. But how do we take the terms and conditions that we update here and create a process that it gets echoed over to our store page, just straight up pearsonworkholding.com. And it just became one of those things where he said, you know what? This is a pain in the butt. It doesn't get updated that often. We're just going to manually do it. That's it. But put that in the process manual that when a term and condition gets updated, someone needs to follow up and then let me know that it's been changed. So there's those things too, that they're just a pain in the butt. It's not worth doing some type of API where they talk to each other, just get it done. And I feel like that's where some type of principle, like getting things done, David Allen, or the lean approach, whatever it may be. It's just like, there's so many variables that you can't just can't rubber stamp every decision as far as what needs to get done. That's where business gets tricky. I found. This section in, in getting things done on how to organize and manage a physical filing cabinet was fascinating to me because I'm not a good filer. And the one that was particularly interesting to me is he said, have a folder for things you want to put into deep mental storage. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm ever in this country, I want to go to this restaurant. You've got a, a little sample menu to drop that in that folder. You can go get it when you need it, but you don't have to remember. You don't have to remind yourself that it's there. So you don't forget it. You've got that folder. And then he organized monthly folders for the 12 months of the year by year. And he would have what he called ticklers, which are any things that he needs to be reminded of at the top of that month, go in a little tickler folder at the front of that month. And that way, any physical reminders he wants to put down for himself, like, oh, it's June. I need to do this thing. Every June, I have to do this thing. I just put that at the front of my June folder. And he reviews that folder at the top of each month So he has an eye on all the things he's put in that ahead of time for himself for that month. Now, that's a really analog way of doing it. And I prefer generally more digital tools than that. But it was a real revelation for me to realize that for certain things, I can put yearly reminders on my phone. Mm -hmm. And anytime I do something, I'm like, ooh, I forgot this. I almost missed this. I need to make sure to get this done by this time next year without fail. Can't miss it. Mm -hmm. Putting it in a sauna, putting it in our ERP, putting it in a bunch of things that other people have access to that it might get changed around or accidentally deleted or put in some other place. For things that are really critical to me, I duplicate them in the Reminders app on my phone and just say, hey, on November 17th next year, alert me. Yeah. And that has definitely saved me some grief. One of the ones that always used to catch me was I would always forget to record the mileage on my vehicles on January 1 so I could look at mileage I'd driven in the previous year. So I have a New Year's Day reminder, snap a picture of the odometer on your car on June 1st. And if you're not in your car, if I'm not driving on June 1st, on Mm -hmm. June 2nd, when I get in my car, snap a picture of the odometer. Yeah. So I was at a friend's house and- went around to get my wife's personal order leaving. It was in their front office. And behind the door, which is where it should be, is this 52-week hanging folder system. And they had dates attached to it. And I peek, and I'm like, what is that? That's cool. They were all the cards associated with all the family birthdays and holidays and all that stuff. 
that I guess my buddy's wife, she's pretty, I don't know what type. She had pre-written every single birthday card for the year, which seems a little disingenuous, but I'm like, oh, okay. No, I'm, I don't get birthday cards from them. So I'm like, okay, when it comes to December, I'd be curious if my card is written in February, but I like the approach. It's just a little, I suppose, a tad bit disingenuous to pre-write every single birthday card for the year and well, Valentine's Day, but I like I the mean, approach. I wouldn't call it disingenuous. It's maybe a little bit impersonal. Feeling, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. But it's not at all like they wrote the card, they picked yeah. the card, they sent the card to you. It's from them. It's their handwriting, their signature. That's totally fine. It depends on how involved you write your cards. If you just say, happy birthday, son, congratulations on being 10, real simple message. If you're not writing anything particularly unique that's related to immediately recent events, then it's yeah. fine. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah that's one thing. My, my son just turned the big one zero. So we took him to Legoland. That's his kind yes. of happy spot in life. I'll be honest, it's my happy place too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my wife and I, we've always made a concerted effort to write handwritten long paragraphs in his cards. That I know a 10-year-old doesn't really soak it in, yep. but someday he'll look back and just see, hopefully in his teenage years, how much his parents love and appreciate him and see his growth trajectory. So yeah. I saw a really interesting thing in an article, and I can't remember where it came from, but it was a dad describing what he had done for his kids. And when your kids get to be middle school age, usually by then they pretty much have to have an email address because mm -hmm. school is contacting them and sending all this other stuff. And what he did was when each of his kids was born, he created a Gmail account for them right away. Yeah. And then kept the login credentials. And their entire childhood, he would send emails to that account. On their birthday, he'd send them photos. And then when they got to be 12 or 13, he'd give them the login credentials for their email account. And they would have hundreds of messages that he'd sent them over the past 10 years. Yeah. Milestones like, hey, you took your first steps today. This is awesome. Here's a that's 10 awesome. second video. And I looked at that and go, wow, that's a really good idea. I, I haven't gotten around to doing that yet. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. It's a digital time capsule. Yeah. That integrates seamlessly with the things you already do, like take pictures of your kids. Yeah. And the ability to share those with them in a way that they then get ownership of mm -hmm. is, I thought, a very clever, but surprisingly meaningful, not just, hey, I have a bunch of photos for you, but I thought about this and wrote you individual notes and letters, told you how proud I was of you, told you how much I loved you, yeah. pointed out key dates and events in your life, reminded you of great times we had together. Mm -hmm. And then the kid gets to get all that and look back at it anytime they want. And that's really fun. That is really cool. Okay. We're going to have to do that. One of my boys, my 10-year-old, he already has a Gmail account, just like you said, all the login and all the school stuff. We homeschool, so there's a lot of correspondence going back and forth. But yeah, my younger son will probably do that. I love that. What's the longest you've ever had a, an email account? And would it be I, like whatever at Henry Holster's or something else? So the longest standing one, I don't think I still have it. I may have gotten rid of it. Uh, I had a Hotmail account from yeah, yeah. like end of high school. Nice. I had way back in the day, obviously I had an AOL account because everybody did. 
Sure. But I don't have that anymore. And I don't have my college email anymore. Probably the longest running one that I have is my personal Gmail email currently. And that goes back, I'm not sure how many years, a while. That one, when I started diving deeper into the Google ecosystem, so Pearson Workholding, it's powered by Gmail. Yep. But there's certain things like when I want to control lights, you need an actual at gmail.com account because yep. some of the, the business accounts don't work. So I switched over in 08 because it's my email address is, has 08 in it. That's just how I remember. My Gmail um, account goes back to 06. 06. Okay. That's a decent amount. Yeah. I'm just now getting to the point where I have to decide, do I delete a bunch of correspondences from 09, 2010, 2012, that type of thing? Or do I pay like $1.99 a month for another, whatever, a terabyte of storage or whatever the next tier is? Well, being a digital hoarder isn't going to be a burden to my children. It'll be cheap and easy for them to toss a couple of external hard drives. Yep. I generally, I definitely have slimmed down. Like I used to have dozens and dozens of gigs of music on Mm -hmm. my laptop. It's all gone. I don't use iTunes at all. I used to burn every CD I owned. I had them all in a digital library. And every time I migrated to a new laptop, I'd transfer that all over. And I didn't do any of that on the most recent two laptops. I don't Um, think anyone will. Like all the services, they provide that, right? They're... There was a weird in-between time when services like Pandora were young and you couldn't play tracks you wanted on demand on any service. So if there was a song and you wanted that song right now, you had to pull it from your library where you'd ripped your CDs into your library. Mm-hmm. But now you can basically play almost anything you want, although it's a constant frustration to me. Like I have Amazon and oftentimes there'll be things I'll put on a playlist and later they wall them off behind Amazon Unlimited and I'm like... I used to be able to listen to this track. It's in my playlist and now I have to pay for it again. What's up with this? Interesting. I did not know so, that. Okay. There's, there is a real cost to having your music not be yours. I've kept all my CDs. They're in CD binders on a storage shelf here at the shop in one of our back rooms. So I've still got them all, but I don't have a car that has a CD player. Mm. And my laptop doesn't have a CD drive. I've got a MacBook Air. Okay. And so just the physical disconnection of the media means it's cool to have. And if I ever wanted to recapture them, I could. Mm -hmm. But my Honda Civic that I sold last week had a CD player and I kept a handful of my favorite CDs and little thin slimline jewel cases in the center console. So if I ever was just like, you know what? I really want to throw on this whole album. I could just Mm -hmm. pop it out, throw it in there and rock out. But I just don't, I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a YouTube premium subscriber. And that gives you YouTube music. And I've found myself, the only reason that I've had to actually rip a CD is like something that can't be found online, like my old bands I've been in. Yep. So we'll throw that up in my library. So any unique or non-commercial recordings? Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, YouTube is, if there's any particular track I want to hear, like I catch a little bit of a song on Pandora and I'm like, I haven't heard that song before. It was in a mix on a channel. I don't know what it was. I want to find that band. YouTube is always the place that I go to find that stuff because Mm -hmm. I can get that track for free and listen to it right then just for a little bit and go, okay, I like this. I'm going to look it up on Spotify or try to track it down and create a channel around it on Pandora, whatever. Yeah. But that's good. Hey, you want to spin the wheel? Get us back on uh, some business talk. Books you're reading. 
Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I am currently in habit five of seven of seven habits of highly effective people. Okay. Which is a classic, really good. I'm in a leadership group facilitated through my church. And so we've divided this book into two readings. It's a pretty hefty book. It's probably inch and a half thick, I suppose, the latest version. Yep. I like that. Stephen Covey, right? Yeah. And so the latest edition has additional insights. I don't know what anniversary we're on, 35th anniversary, 30th, something like that. Yep. But it has additional insights that have been really, really helpful. I wish I had the book in front of me, but it just brings it into the 2020s, I guess you could say, and uh, makes things applicable, freshens everything up. But the seven habits are timeless. And most of them, most of them revolve around some type of just oftentimes it's like a flat out ageless biblical principle, just like common human decency, that type of thing. So I think that's why we're doing it as guys from church. It's not like a Christian book or anything like that. Covey, I don't believe he's a Christian. I would call him a deist because he does talk about like God or things like that, or we're in the church. But yeah, it's just like the golden rule. Like you just treat people how you would want to be treated. That covers 90% of most of the things. But right now the chapter I'm in, or maybe, maybe I've just finished, talks about almost like transactions between bank accounts. Like I could yell at my kid right now for making the same mistake for the 10th time, or we just laugh about it. And I say, look, son, I've said this multiple times. Maybe you're not ready to do this activity or this task. Let's figure something else out. And you don't try and win the battle and lose the war. That's my words, not his. It's about making deposits into his bank account, the relational bank account, not so much like a transaction, like a a win-lose where I win because I'm the dominant parent and he loses because he's the submissive child that's living under my roof. It doesn't, that's not the approach. So the chapter that I'm in right now is win-lose, lose, win-win, that type of thing. So really super insightful stuff. I started that book and I haven't finished it. The one that made a Big impact on me was begin with the end in mind, which I think was point or chapter habit number two. Sure. And that idea, I've been talking with some guys. I'm part of Vistage. Yeah. I've been talking with some of the Vistage guys. The term doing a pre-mortem on something has become really interesting. Have we talked about that before? No, we have not. Okay. So a pre-mortem is the idea of you're looking at a potential project, you're looking at a sales plan, a go-to-market strategy, whatever it is you're thinking about doing. And you don't just discuss what you're going to do. You can actually say, let's do a pre-mortem. And if this was going to be a 12-month-long project, if it goes badly and we can it 12 months from now, what went wrong? Mm. Wow. Where did the wheels fall off this project in the future? And making people mentally play through to the end and saying, well, Maybe the issue was that we just didn't have a stable enough supply chain and we invested a bunch of time and money and energy up in the front creating demand for this. And then we couldn't sustain it because we didn't control this piece of the puzzle and that piece of the puzzle. And we got too far out over our skis. 
and then customer satisfaction tanked because we couldn't fulfill on time. And then that caused brand damage. And eventually we had to just cut the whole thing loose and move on. Mm -hmm. Doing that pre-mortem ahead of time, it's not binding, but it allows you to, without pointing fingers at anybody, if your pre-mortem is like, well, eventually this whole project is going to fail in 12 months because the guy sitting next to me is going to absolutely screw it up. He's just going to, he's going to tank it. That's not an effective pre-mortem, but that actually could be legitimate feedback. Like one of your employees might come to you and say, hey, man, I think what's going to happen is in, over the next 12 months, like person who's running lead on this is not going to do a good job mm-hmm. and it's just not going to work. And I would rather have that thought now and chew on it mm-hmm. than get eight months in and go, wow, I feel like we've really gone off on the wrong heading here. Mm-hmm. We are nowhere near land. Hey, did your group discuss, because to me, the, my self-caution would be, there's going to be problems along the way. I don't want to spend brain power trying to solve problems before they're actually problems. Actually, that's one of our company principles. Don't solve problems before they're actually problems. Okay. We try and convey that in our customer service calls. Like a customer will say, oh, one that we get often is, hey, I got the vacuum chuck out of the package, threw it on a CMM. And it's not flat. And we go, well, are you going to be using this on a CMM? No, I'm going to be using it in a CNC. Okay, well, let's go ahead and clamp it down we'll on the C. Down. Yeah, in the way that it should be used, run an indicator because we actively make our vacuum chucks. If there's any bow, it's going to be dished like a bowl, not like a hill. It's going to be a valley so that when you put the clamps on, it pulls perfectly flat. So we kindly try and convey that. But did your group? discuss like where there's going to be problems. Let's not overcommit to like the pre-mortem process. Yeah. The what if conundrum. You can what if anything to death. And everything. Yeah. And so for me, when I think about a pre-mortem, it's not so much, I'm going to think about my project in great detail, no matter what. I'm going to be laying in bed at night thinking about it. I'm not going to be able to put it out of my mind. If I do a pre-mortem, it's not then mentally off the table for the next few months. I'm going to think about it constantly. But the pre-mortem as a place where employees have permission to state their reservations and what they view as likely points of failure in a looking back, this is what I think went wrong 12 months from now kind of idea. It's an interesting mental exercise for them to think that far ahead and look back and see how what they would describe what they see as the likely mode of failure. Mm. It's not a guys for the next three weeks, we're just doing a pre mortem on this. It could be a very brief discussion because I know I have, and I'm sure you probably have had things that you did where later on you're like, man, I had a gut feeling that was going to yep. happen this whole time. <laughs> totally. I had this weird feeling that that thing was lurking around the corner because I could just see its toe. That problem's toe poking around the corner from all the way across the room. And I walked over there and walked around the corner and it bit me. Yeah. Because it was just sitting there the whole time. And giving yourself permission to say those things out loud is really useful. I think that's great leadership too. Like my goal is to develop leaders, multiply and develop them. So if I'm leading a team on like one of the five new products we're going to launch this year, hey guys, we're going to launch this. What do you think could go wrong with this? Yeah. And if there's blank stairs, well, there's your homework. 
keep thinking about it. But yep. there are some of those things that are very front of mind. This happened on the road device. We've been selling it. Well, we've been selling it since 2017. And only until about three, two and a half to three years into it, did we really have the process just totally nailed down. It's a vendor heavy product, lots of outside processing, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Having them not damage our parts, having them process our parts correctly. Like it had always been a struggle. Yep. And I know like with one of these new products, we're just going to start with the most simple product where it's only two new components we need to make. Everything else is kind of like a repeat component. Asking the guys, what do you think could go wrong here? What are the things that are going to frustrate us in that? I know off the top of my head, it's like this one product after it comes back from bead blasting, how are we going to keep it from not getting scratched in a horrific way? Yep. Great. That I just know. And I hope someone else brings that up and not because they heard this podcast or anything like that, but to actually think through what could happen. That's what yeah. I feel like I do most days is I think more steps ahead than some of the people here. And that's essentially take me out of the picture. That's the type of people that climb these ladders of yeah. responsibility and income and all that stuff. And it's helpful. You are the person with whom the buck always stops. Of course. Yeah. And that means that any failure to plan eventually ends up, if the problem escalates and escalates and escalates, it eventually ends up on your plate. There is no place else for it to go. Yep. And not wasting time pre-solving potential problems is a good strategy, but always having some CPU spent on anticipating likely Mm-hmm. Not all the possible outcomes, but I always want to have at least have had a thought about mm-hmm. if this doesn't go well, what's my plan B? I don't need a plan F, G, H, L, Z. I just need a, this is what we're going to try. And if it doesn't work, what's our next option? Yeah, right. For me, the challenge is if I don't have a plan B, especially if I run into a quality problem, if I don't have a plan B, then I have to either invent a plan on the spot if I haven't thought about it yet, or face that temptation to accept a quality defect. And some people are like, oh no, I would never accept a quality defect. And I'm like, really? A five-figure quality defect? You would just be like, Yep, this is the right thing to do. You won't you wouldn't have a second's pause of is there a way we can salvage this? Yeah. Is there a way we can clean that up? Is there a way we can fix that and not scrap it out? And it is good to reuse, recycle, not throw things away. I don't believe that everything has to be absolutely perfect. My friend Roger has a sign in his shop that says shipping beats perfection. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. It's not that quality doesn't matter. But you get up to the very ceiling on quality, and that last tenth of a percent is the hardest of the entire range to really close the gap on. And in many cases, we as the people who design and manufacture the products are easily seduced by the desire to have the level of quality reflect on us in a way that causes us to disproportionately focus on things that aren't actually valuable to the customer. Mm -hmm. That waste of overprocessing is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was a long way away from the buck always stops with you, but the temptation to accept a quality defect is real. Yeah. Yeah. We had a quality 
issue with our pro pallet bases. A very small window that went out. We cut keyway slots on the bottom of the PPS base. Yep. So that you can put like a keyway insert that helps align it in the T slot. Yep. I would say probably one in 200 customers actually uses those. Yep. And we cut them to the tolerance. It was actually on the just right above the minimum. Well, when it went to hard anodized, they plated it to the maximum and the key <laughs> and the keyway were the exact same dimension. Well, you can't put, if it's a 250, you can't put a 250 pin in a 250 hole. It just, it's that tiny bit of interference. And so we opted to just replace the stupid base. It's just not worth it. We'll flip it to a friend or a local shop or something like that. But it was one of those things where I knew that was a possibility someday when I designed that. And I thought I should just not design this feature into the PPS base because it will be one more thing that needs to be checked. And one day they are going to get it wrong. And that's going to be paired up with a customer that does need to use this critical feature. And it's going to be a problem. And that day happened a couple of weeks ago. So I go, yep, you know what? We're going to eat it big time on this. We're just going to replace the base. And that's what yep. we did. So yeah, I didn't obsess over it. It eventually will come back to bite you, but I'm willing to pay the bigger price of just replacing the base altogether. Yep. So yeah. It makes sense. I've got a project that I'm working on developing that's going to involve some inset magnets in a metal part. And recognizing that there's going to probably be enough tolerance variations in the OD of those magnets. And if I ever have to change vendors, buy magnets from an alternate source, Mm -hmm. it's like, those are just not a super tight tolerance thing generally at the prices we're shopping at and the places we're buying magnets from. And so going, okay, we want to make this part. We want it to run basically hands off. I don't want to be chasing cutter comp on this. I don't want to be having to mic every stack of magnets when it comes in and be like, oh, these ones are 2,000 larger than the last batch we had. Let's go update the cam. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to do any of that. And so figuring out what we can do to make sure that the parts stay together, that the magnets stay in place, and that we don't have to always be checking on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, ugh. I think that's what... We're not perfect by any means, but I think that's our biggest struggle is when we rely on the accuracy of a third party Oof. to do their job. And yeah, because like we were at the low end of our tolerance range and the anodizer just out of nowhere plated this. It could have been all of them or just this one base extra thick. And it built yep. up a thousand two tenths rather than the nine tenths that we're used to, you know, and yep. that became a problem for the customer. So. I think that's what makes business interesting. You can either get bummed out over it or you can just go, yeah, this is why we're in business to service problems like this. So that's the hyper optimistic person in me speaking. That's not ideal though. I can see the sunshine, the hyper optimistic person. I saw something in a Paul Akers video recently. He was doing a tour and they were talking about man, material, machine, and method. Mm. That those are the four change points in this one factory that he was touring. Anytime they have an established process and they change the person who's doing it, they 
poke their antenna up and are paying extra attention for defects. Anytime they change material, either to a different grade of material or from a different vendor, or even they just change to a new lot or a new batch of material. Anytime any one of these four factors changes, we can't just be on autopilot. We have changed a factor in the equation. If the machinery changes or the method, the process changes in some Uh way, then all the quality sensors have to be fully turned on because it's just like posting unproven code. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I just made one change and you send it over there and just hit your. No. (laughs) No. Anytime I change anything, I always re-simulate. Yeah. The only time I repost code with changes is if I've gone back and added pass-through comments or other things that are non-machine motion related. Mm-hmm. If I go back and relabel the program or I go back and add some more information in the header, something, and I repost that and the functioning code is unchanged, all I've done is comment things, that I'll post and rerun without proving it out again. But anytime, oh, I changed the tool number or, oh, I changed this or that, always, mm-hmm. always I love proven it. it. Hey, can we switch gears? Because I do have some questions for you. Shoot. So it's been on my radar for a while, but it's this conveyor system. Yeah. Do you know what that's called? The Flex? Flex 2. Yeah, Flex 2, Flex Junior. So that's been on my radar. And I think maybe we might do an end of year purchase on one of those. I probably, knowing you and a bunch of other handful of people, Brother Control is pretty user-friendly, I suppose, compared to Fnook or what are your thoughts on that? I like the brother control, the flex two system. I would probably talk off the record okay. to <laughs> people at Yamazin who are okay. in apps okay, and just find out without this being in writing, just get somebody on the phone and say, Hey man, what's your sense of this? Because what I've heard about it is that it's suited for certain projects really well. And for others, it's just a real pain. So, and so it, I it, don't look at that as this thing is a slam dunk. Would you consider it? I, at this point, wouldn't consider it because I don't have anything that I'm running in that kind of volume that are small metal parts. I wouldn't consider the flex system for plastic parts because our mixes are high and our volumes are often so low that we're only making 10 or 20 of something at a time. And it involves a fixture top change. Yeah. And so the amount of time it takes to load and unload and change fixtures is relatively brief and it just isn't worth it. We're not making high enough volumes. But if I were running things where I'm going to make thousands of a certain part every couple of weeks and I just want it running constantly, I would at least consider it. I like the idea of minimizing the amount of precise alignment that you need to get the stock into the loading area and have the machine be able to grab it and load it into the CNC and run it. Mm-hmm. It's most suitable for parts that you can get a lot of them on the conveyor and they are relatively easy for the machine gripper arm to pick up correctly. Mm-hmm. And whatever your work holding method is, it's relatively forgiving of exact alignment when the part's put in place and like it closes and indexes your part. Yeah. Perfect for First stop work, ideally, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, it probably is. 
I have actually never been in front of, aside from seeing them at IMTS and I wasn't really paying attention because I wasn't shopping for one. Mm-hmm. I've not really spent time in front of a Flex 2 system to look okay. at how it works. Okay. Yeah. But I've only seen just a handful of videos. Let me say this. I, having owned multiple UR robots, I know how difficult automation actually is. Yep. And even like our vision system, which has been our most reliable system for the first time since we've had that putting out good parts, I want to say in towards the end of 2018, I believe, maybe early 2019, it actually made a mistake. Okay. So to back up, we use a UR10 robotic arm with a homemade vacuum gripper that puts pallets or pro pallets into a VF2 and everything is held via vacuum on everything. There's no vices, no clamps. So there's a whole uh, video series about that. So the reason that we went with the vision system is because if you go to a pin plate where it uses gravity, it puts it like in the corner, the socket blanks vary. So then we go, okay, well, let's just probe the part, which we still do to this day. It's a little bit slower, but it's way more reliable. What happened this time was the robot picked up a pallet and the pallet below it stuck to it just from the coolant. And I'm not sure. I don't know how that happened. I walked by and the robot was in the machine stalled out. And I just rolled my eyes and went and got my other guy. And I walked by later and they said, yeah, we figured out it it picked up this. And I didn't quite understand it. That's kind of not. So you didn't get an actual crash. You got a failure load. It was not even a crash. So we built our UR program pretty robust so that if everything isn't perfect, it will go up. Oh, I don't like this. And it'll go to a safe location. This was interesting because it did not go to a safe location. It maxed out the payload of the arm. That's what happened. Gotcha. And so we've got a product called the VAC watch, which is a simple switch. If it's, do you have one? I can't remember. I don't. Okay. So simple switch, if it senses vacuum or not, it, yep. it, it's just a simple relay. And then the machine reads the status of that. So we've got multiple VAC watches on the end effector and on the work holding in the machine. So I'm not sure the full story about that, but I, I say all this to know that something like a flex system, brother flex or flex two or flex junior. I just know that if it uses vision, great, that's a bonus. But it's still a blind, touch-less sensitivity robot. Like, it'll know if it picked up the part, but did it hold it perfectly? Did the jaws grip it at full depth? That type of thing. That's the thing that makes me a little bit nervous. Since I, I know a lot of brother owners, and off the top of my head, I can't think of a single one that I know personally that's using a Flex 2. Mm-hmm. And they're doing a lot of different kinds of applications. I don't take that as definitive, but if it was a slam dunk, like when S700 started becoming popular and I started seeing a bunch of small shops, I was fairly early on in that wave of dudes getting S700s. I bought my first one in 2015 Mm -hmm. in terms of the small Instagram garage shop kind of business. The person who I paid a lot of attention to is Jared Drinkwater from Binary Engineering because he had an S700 and was making all kinds of cool stuff. And once people got those machines and loved them, they couldn't stop talking about them. If those kinds of shops had been trying Flex 2s and loving them, I definitely would have heard about it. Interesting. Yeah. 
Now, the really cool thing that I've been seeing a lot of more of recently is in spindle grippers. I think we talked about this briefly before. Companies like Austere Manufacturing and Lichen Manufacturing are doing really cool stuff Mm -hmm. where they're using shunk grippers in a tool holder in the spindle to pick parts out of a load tray that's on the machine table, Mm -hmm. load them into a pneumatically or hydraulically camped fourth axis vice, machine op one, pick it up, take it to a flip station, Mm -hmm. basically swap hands, invert the part, pick it back up, put it in the op two fixture, and the machine goes from raw stock to finished two op on a fourth axis parts and the machine the spindle and the tool changer is the robot yeah there's no there's no other thing and they integrate probing to make sure that the fixture is properly empty that the part got ejected that the flip station is lined up correctly they have all these routines built in so they can basically walk away from it and run it overnight and i look at that and go if my option were to have in spindle grippers in machine automation where there's nothing mounted, bolted to the floor out in front of the machine, nothing next to the machine, everything's inside the machine. Mm-hmm. And if I need to take this automation out, I'm literally just taking tool holders out of the carousel. Mm-hmm. That's very attractive to me. And the overall cost compared to something like a, a UR is pretty significantly lower. Mm-hmm. This part that I'm working on, it's going to have these magnets in it. I'm hoping to do that kind of approach with it. I'm still a long ways away from being to the part of the project where we start doing the concept work of how exactly that workflow is going to go. But that idea of taking one of our pallet machines, probably our R650, putting a fourth axis on each table, having a raw stock and a flip station position on each table, and then just you load 60 small parts of stock and then you send it in and it just feeds itself, flips the parts, runs the op two, and then you just collect finished parts out of it. That is really amazing. And how Pearson would factor into that would be, we'd probably be using mini pallet bases to hold our raw stock Mm -hmm. trays so that if we needed to change the part or change the stock size, we just swap the pallet out and we can have a new stock tray or even potentially have a single like we do now with a lot of our vacuum fixtures. We have a mini pallet base on a riser because the R series have a pretty high Z bias. On a riser, mini pallet base with essentially a pallet as a subplate. It's got a standardized pin system. It's got vacuum gasketing in it. And then we put sacrificial plastic fixtures on top of it for every individual part. Yes. We could easily do that and just have HDPE fixtures that go on top of the Pearson system mm-hmm. and each of them have the pockets for whatever the appropriate size stock is. Because this is going to be at least, probably hopefully just two, but at least two components to make this overall assembly. And if we need to swap from component A to component B, if we just pull a couple of screws out and take an HDPE tray off, super easy. Yeah, I love it. Are you familiar with our park picker? I'm actually not. Okay, just go to PearsonWorkBuilding.com and the, what would you call this, the beauty video that plays the cycle thing. You'll see, it's, I think it's right after the road device. I'm watching it right now. But basically, it was this pneumatic cylinder that would drop down, and it probably dropped down maybe about 10 inches or so. And then at the end of it, it was the vacuum cup gripper. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the original self-loading to make your vacuum systems. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. That so vertical it was a piston alongside the spindle. That's right. Yeah. So we've been asked for many years, hey, can you make that for us? And yeah. Sorry, I just is, didn't recognize the name. I've, yeah, I've yeah, watched that's that true. video many times. Right, right. <laughs> But, you know, that was one of the things that's what really grew this company early on because it wasn't 
a $60,000 check I had to write for a robot, which then took 60 hours a month for me to program for every yep. single thing. It was just simple. It did all sizes of our top plates. It just did it well. And it just, yeah, it was simple. And so maybe I will turn that in, but I'd like to do some type of pneumatic gripper work, but when it gets to the end of the stroke, then it closes its jaws. I think that might be the next version and I'll do both and just call them our part pickers. So there's something beautiful about a simple solution that's not expensive. Mm -hmm. It just works well. Yeah. There is no virtue to using a more complicated, more expensive solution when a simpler one will do. That's right. It, it came up in a discussion recently because there are some grants available in the state of Indiana, specifically around smart technology, automation, and robotics. Mm. And I visited another shop and they had applied for this grant and gotten it and used it to install a bunch of automation on a particular cell that they were building. And I looked at it and I wondered to myself, I didn't ask the question, but I wondered to myself, would they have designed the level of complexity of this automation the way that they currently have it if... They weren't using a grant. And is there an incentive to build fancier than necessary automation, more sizzle, less stake, yeah. in order to make it more exciting looking to the people who are going to underwrite the grant or not? Right. And be like, wow, the robots dance and then they load parts and then they do all this stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, but if we just installed like a really simple thing that just bumps the part and then pushes it into place and locks it down, it doesn't look like a robot. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and the sense in which there can be real economic incentives to complexify mm -hmm. what otherwise could be a much simpler, more robust process. I'm not faulting this other shop. I think they did a, a completely reasonable thing and their workflow works. But I look at it and go, boy, that has a lot of moving parts. I don't know if I would have wanted to do it that way if it were myself. Yeah. And in considering whether or not I want to ever apply for that grant in the future, if the person who knows how the grant works says, yeah, you're a manufacturing company, but you know, we really like to see robots. Like we just, we would love to see a robot. I'm like, great, great. I'll have a robot out in front of the machine. It'll dance around and mm -hmm. open a beer for you. And then inside the machine, we're going to have the actual automation doing its thing simply, quickly, and expensively and making great parts. That's How's right. that sound? Will you write me the grant? <laughs> <laughs> and if I said it that way, they would not write me the grant. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. Well, simplicity isn't celebrated. Going back to the top of this discussion, you have safety, quality, simplicity. And I'm always telling the guys, that's a great idea. Now simplify it, make it more simple. Now I know you know how to use it as the inventor or Alex knows how to use it because he's a sharp guy. But what about the guy that we haven't hired yet that's new to manufacturing and is not great with spatial relations and definitely not troubleshooting? That's the person you have to design this fixture for. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We did a great lean improvement this spring where we went back, because we have a lot of legacy fixtures that we've made years ago that we're still using occasionally. And many of them were made with a fully symmetrical four pin pattern. And I just knew all the fixtures always load in a certain orientation because I designed them, but they sure. were not pokeo. They could be, all of them could be mounted 180 degrees mm -hmm. reversed. And what we actually did was I pulled all the Pearson pallets that were our sub base and they've got dowel pins sticking up out of them. I took all those out and put them back on mill one because I have coolant in mill one and added a third different sized offset dowel pin. 
Love it. And then we had to modify the underside of every single fixture. Yeah. But it's just it didn't need to be super dimensionally accurate. It just needed to be a clearance hole in the underside of the fixture where this oversized pin would go. So we've got quarter inch dowel pins aligning the part. And then the orientation is go, no go by a very shallow three eighths inch pin in a different location. And you can't put the fixture on any orientation, but the proper one. But then I had to make sure when we moved from the regular machines onto the twin table machines, where the XY rotation gets turned 90 degrees, that when I was updating programs, I have to be very, very sure that I'm updating those coordinates in the right direction because the fixture can only go one way now. Right. And so when we modified all those fixtures, it was like, all right, are we sure the program runs in this orientation? Let's dry run the program, stop it at the lead-in point for this tool. Okay, that defines where the tip of the part is, the fixture orients this way, the third pinhole goes here. <laughs> and it took a couple of weeks to work through all the fixtures in the shop and get that done, but it made such a difference. Yeah. And it's not even just that the fixtures can't be misloaded anymore. We have some fixtures that run pairs of parts and the fixtures are fully symmetrical. So the 180 orientation didn't matter. And that was why it was a real bugaboo because it only mattered on certain fixtures, not all of them. Some fixtures were indifferent to the 180 and others were highly sensitive to it. Yeah, And being able to then say, even on the symmetrical ones that traditionally have not cared about the 180 alignment thing, by pokey-yoking them now, I have taken a variable out of the process. And if we ever run into quality issues with that fixture, I won't have to say parts came out wrong, but I don't know which way the fixture was facing when these particular parts got cut. I can always drop it back in and say, this is the exact orientation this fixture was in when these bad parts got cut. And then I can more exactly identify which position on that fixture made the bad parts. Yes. I love it. That was actually, this whole discussion was one of the contributing factors when I designed the mini pallet system. Because for years, our pro pallet system, the pallets can go on, quote unquote, backwards. Yep. With the mini, I knew that the demographic for that would be like the startup, the small machine. You're probably one of the outliers. I mean, the brothers are relatively small machines, the scope of like the entire spectrum of machines, but that you're a pro user and you have multiple mini pallet system bases. Yep. Uh, most of them, it's we'll buy one mini pallet system, throw it on my Tormach or my Haas yep. mini mill. And then when I grow up as a company or expand, then we'll go with the PPS and we'll get the full 2040 type table. Yep. But that was one of the things that I thought, no, we have to make these where they only go on one way. Now, the argument why the PPS, you can go different ways is because we had customers that had multiple, because they're a professional shop and they have multiple machines with multiple pro pallet bases, which were all in different orientations, sometimes completely rotated 90 degrees. Like I, I like them long in Y. And yep. some companies just say, well, it's X is a longer travel. They should be long in X. Yeah, that's great. But I mean, on, it's, it's psychotic, but fine. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah. I did. But yeah, no, but I have your money, so I'm going to treat you kindly. No. But, you know, that was one of the things like, well, my guy set it up. He tore it down, set it up. It's backwards. And he just indicated everything. You're telling me that we have to tear it down and go through that whatever half hour, 45 minute indication process. No, we're just going to make it so the pallets can go on, quote unquote, backwards. But that's why it's a pro system because with much flexibility comes much responsibility. I don't know if that's yep. a great selling point, but that's just how it's going to be. So I have a question about this because when I set up our two R450s, I was putting 
a mini pallet system on each side of the table. So I had to put in four risers and then install and indicate in and probe four mini pallet systems. Mm -hmm. And I actually really, I struggled. I don't spend a lot of time with an indicator, but I remember seeing somewhere on Instagram, some guy had made, I think for an MPS, but maybe it was a PPS. He had basically made himself a reference bar Mm. that fit very tightly over the two pins Mm -hmm. and had a ground parallel face and then he could just drop it in place and then have a smooth, beautiful, consistent surface to put an indicator tip on mm-hmm. and sweep the whole thing in Y and not be having to, because what I was doing was I was sweeping a pin, yeah. going up in Z, going over to the other pin, going down, sweeping it, and then adjusting the thing. And it would have been way easier if I had a constant surface and I could, just like I was doing a vice face right? because I was turning these sideways to me and everything on the R series machines on the 650 in particular you're looking in from the side of the machine. The like a horizontal. Control. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. It was when I first set that machine up, the number of times when I looked at my hand as I'm getting ready to select which axis on the jog handle, I'm about to jog the machine and I'm like, wait, is that X? Yeah. Right. No, that's Y. Wait a minute. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just, and all you, if you're indicating things in and you just, bump the jog handle on the wrong axis. Ugh. Like, oh, I got to start over. I, I don't know where I am anymore. I just bumped something. Yeah. Do you want to know what how we recommend? Yes, please. Okay, so here's what we do. You only use your indicator and sweep like one of the sides of the PPS base and you get it super rough within 5,000. Now that's a huge number for an indicator. But what we try and achieve in that is just to make sure that in step two, when you're actually touching those pins, Yep. It's not going two revolutions when it should only go one revolution on the yes. dial indicator. So yep. you sweep it in so you know that it's only going to go one revolution. Then we have a program. We call it like in the comment section, it's called careful dude. That's literally <laughs> what they call it because careful, you can really mess this up. And it's just, it basically uses a, a G91, which is not absolute, it's incremental. So the workflow there is you just take your indicator, you take it to the round pin, you edge up to it, you set your indicator to zero, and then you run it. And then what Careful Dude does is it backs off, it slow feeds away one inch, it rapids up, rapids over in Y, and then slow feeds down in Z and over in X at something like something relatively slow, like 50 inches per minute. And then it repeats that. There's a, what would it be, an M0, and then there's an M99 at the end with an M0. So you just go, okay, tap, press cycle start. It goes up and over to the original. Okay, tap, tap, press cycle start. And then you get it done. Then you hand tighten. You do it again. You incrementally tighten. Five minutes yep. is probably what it takes. That's actually what I ended up doing is I hand wrote myself a short program that would give me a safe travel distance away, a hop over the center locking lug yes. to the next pin. Yep. And I didn't figure that out until I was like an hour into messing around this thing. I'm like, oh, I should write a program for this. And it went way better after that. It was- yeah. But yeah, even then, if I've got an indicator and I'm like, I'm about to run a program and I've got an indicator. It I, just, know. It just, I know, I know whew. that's, <sighs> we, we considered posting the code on our website where you just copy paste. And I made the decision to say, no, we don't supply G code. We'll give you like an example. <laughs> yeah. The concept, but you got to write it. So I don't know. I'm still on the fence about that. I've sent it out to a few customers where I've spoken to, or my tech guy Carlos has spoken to. We're like, this guy's sharp. He's not going to mess it up. He's careful. Yes, he can do it. And then I say, just dry run it like three inches above, please, just for the first time. 
make sure the axes are right. What do you think about the idea of actually using a bar with bushings in it to fit over the pins that gives you a constant sweep surface that's just high enough that you just sweep over the top of that center lug? We have thought about that. Builds in whatever the tolerance is between the bushing and the pin Yeah, is baked into your bar. Yeah. The bar isn't also held in the exact place it should be. We have thought about that. I think I've seen that post on Instagram that you're talking about. It's great. I just think keeping it simple where you sweep the side to five thou. Yep. I don't know. Ideally, people should not be taking their PPS or MPS bases on and off. The point is, no, now that is your new foundation. That's your new quick change unit. So whether it's vice or fixture or like our vacuum chucks, our vacuum chuck pallets, that's your base. Do it right one time. But I know that's not the right approach for everyone. I know everyone, not everyone can do that. I don't know. I just, I take the simplicity approach. I think we would produce those and the majority of them would sit on the shelf. And then once that happens, you can't justify the price, you know, 40 bucks for this. No way. I would much rather give someone the solid model and I go have at it. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yep. Any other questions on your list? No. I want to hear about a book you're reading really quick though. I am reading right now, I'm reading Jason Meyer's book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin, A Path Toward a More Just, Equitable, and Peaceful World. Interesting. It's interesting to me. I'm fascinated by Bitcoin in particular. I'm not really a crypto guy. I'm not into DeFi. I don't own any Solana or any of the more exotic (laughs) proof of stake kinds of currencies. But the implications of Bitcoin for the energy industry are really interesting to me because now that we have solar on our property, I'm looking at this and I'm weighing out the, am I actually getting good return on investment for my solar? And one of the things that really bothers me is obviously solar is an intermittent power source. You have really bright days and you have cloudy days, but even on the bright sunny days, you don't have constant power generation the whole time. And so because we don't have generation, we don't have storage on site, we are grid connected. I can't suck up a bunch of energy from the sun, store it at 10 a.m. and then use it later that same day. Mm-hmm. It's just a use it or lose it when the system is generating whatever amount of that power that the shop is actively consuming at that moment we take and anything extra flows into the grid and we get reimbursed basically nothing for it, a mm-hmm. very, very low price for that power. And so it isn't even enough to just say, oh, we consume on average X number of kilowatt hours a day and our system on average produces X number of kilowatt hours per day. It's a lot of that production actually misses our peak demand times Mm. and just flows past us back to the grid. And we still end up buying power from the grid to cover those peak demand times anyway. And that kind of frustration where electricity is a perishable resource, it's transmissible, but it's not infinitely transmissible. I can't send my power to Minnesota and have it get there without a significant amount of loss and waste. And the idea that things like the server farms that power the Bitcoin blockchain can be remotely located because all they need is a satellite internet connection. I thought, you know, what if on a solar array like mine, I set it up so that anytime I'm producing from our array more power than the shop is demanding, I've got a little bank of servers that switch on and do some hashing. And then when we drop below production, when the shop is no longer producing excess power from the panels, that shuts back off. It's, like, mm. well, it's an interesting idea. Wow. The reason I'm reading Jason Meyer's book is because 
I am generally politically conservative and I tend toward libertarianism in Mm -hmm. terms of my overall feel on how much government should be directly involved in my life. Mm -hmm. I would rather be left alone than not generally. Mm -hmm. But most of the cryptocurrency and Bitcoin world is pretty pretty heavy on the right. And there aren't a lot of people on the progressive left. There's a whole way of thinking about the world that's very different in terms of how they think about harm and responsibilities and social costs and all these things. And Jason Myers, a school teacher, wrote this book because he's a progressive liberal and he had learned about Bitcoin. He's a math teacher. Mm -hmm. And so Bitcoin as, as a technology fascinated him. But he said, basically, I had to chew the meat and spit out a lot of bones of political and cultural views that I don't agree with that a lot of people are assumed are just baked into Bitcoin, but they're actually not. The technology mm. of Bitcoin is apolitical. Sure. It's just the technology. And so he said, nobody had yet written a book that framed Bitcoin in terms and a worldview that would make sense to progressives and liberals. So I decided to write the book. So I heard him guest on a podcast I listened to, and I thought, I probably don't agree with this guy on much of anything. Mm-hmm. But I identify with him a great deal as a teacher. I used to be a high school teacher. Sure. I understand how much he cares about his students and wants them to understand how the world is changing around them and not either be oblivious to, ignorant of, or to discount new things and go like, oh, that's not a thing. It's like, well, no, this actually could be a thing that significantly changes the landscape of the financial world by the time you're an adult. Man. By the time you're buying your first house and paying your mortgage. If we have one more good recession, if we get two, 2008 2.0 mm-hmm. or worse for some reason, the whole landscape just changes a lot. So yeah. I'm reading that book. I'm enjoying it. He clearly has a lot of views that I do not share, uh-huh. but he also is willing to write and discuss things without it being like, if you think government should be smaller and you like guns, you're a bad person. <laughs> so that's been fun. Is he a Californian? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of bad ideas come out of California. Yeah. You take good ones too. Yeah. No, probably. (laughs) Probably. Shoot. Yeah. Um, On the flip side, probably the keto diets come out of it too. But anyways, I would say that you and I see eye to eye on politics. Like I'm a registered independent and I lean very much so these days towards libertarianism. And I had never thought that Bitcoin would be politicized like that. Yeah, I do think of it as apolitical. So he's coming at it like why a liberal or progressive should invest in Bitcoin? Well, it's not really should invest in Bitcoin necessarily, but should learn about Bitcoin and care about Bitcoin. Because one of the most interesting frameworks that I think is often different, C.S. Lewis made a comparison in, I believe it's in the screw tape letters, where he said that men and women think about things, certain kinds of things very differently. And Men think about not causing trouble for other people, and women think about taking pains on behalf of other people. Mm -hmm. And whether you agree with that sentiment or not, the idea that people could frame a similar issue from a completely opposite direction, like as a business-owning capitalist, I like that there are good roads that I can ship things on. Mm -hmm. That matters to me. (laughs) Sure. And- the extent to which big businesses often do offload a lot of their social and environmental costs 
onto the communities around them in a very real, tangible way mm-hmm. is an actual problem that people on the right seem to care less about than people on the left. Mm-hmm. People on the right are often willing to let the free market do things that are obviously inhumane. Yeah. And for somebody who is on the progressive left who cares a lot about people who are at economic and financial and social and geographical disadvantages and the way that they can just get under the wheels of the bus so easily and so quickly, even in terms of inflation, if you are in an economic bracket where you can afford hard assets, things like property, houses, CNC machines, those things are a hedge against inflation for you. The value of your home goes up as the housing market goes up, as inflation happens. If you are living hand to mouth and you're spending all your cash every month and you are renting your apartment, you've got a loan on your car and you don't have any hard assets that you own that can appreciate, even if they don't appreciate at the same rate as inflation, if you have no hard assets that appreciate in any way, you are significantly more quickly and severely affected by inflation. And if Bitcoin can help stabilize that Mm -hmm. and be a way that people who are at the financial margins don't have to disproportionately bear the cost of economic policies that actually inflate the wealth of the wealthiest people, Mm -hmm. that's a clear and compelling case that a progressive person who thinks in those terms would immediately understand. Sure. Where if you said, Bitcoin is good because it takes money out of the government's control. Someone's like, well, that's not necessarily a good thing. You're like, oh yeah, sure it is. They're red coats. I'm a libertarian. Sure. That doesn't make any sense yeah. to a person whose default view is not to view the government as at best neutral and most often negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really want to be able to think in, understand and think in those terms, even if they're not my default worldview, mm-hmm. seeing how things that I care about can be presented to other people. I live in a very liberal town in a generally conservative state. Mm-hmm. And so I had 15 minutes west. I'm in tiny farming communities. Mm-hmm. I'm in Bloomington. I'm in a Big Ten college town that's like a little piece of New York or California plopped down in the center of red Indiana. Mm-hmm. And so the people that I'm around in my day-to-day life very widely. If I'm talking to the person next to me in line at the grocery store, that person could be a dyed-in-the-wool Republican or an absolutely off-the-edge, far-left progressive. I have no way of knowing. Yeah. When I lived in Austin, Texas, it was the same thing. Now, I'm, I lived in Austin in 07 through 2010, and it was, well, their slogan is, keep Austin weird. Yeah. And back then, it wasn't politically divisive. It was political. Obama had been elected, and so Austin kind of went crazy. and. All that stuff, but it was more of. I really enjoyed that time in my life. I don't think I could live there again, but I enjoyed that time in my life because it was stretching. It was outside of my hometown of Simi Valley, which literally the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library is in Simi Valley, so it has deep, (laughs) deep red roots. Um, Kipper Town, yeah. So I liked that ability for me to be stretched, and really, it allowed me to grow in my tolerance. Where I'm like, well, you know what? This person has a purple mohawk. I haven't ever seen that in Simi Valley, California. But you know what? They seem like a really fun person. Why do yeah. I have some weird, like, preconceived notion about what this person, how they'll treat me? When they probably have the same thing as this dude that just left church and I'm in a collared shirt and I'm getting ice cream with my wife after lunch. 
it, it was just stretching. And here in California, like they, it, we have the worst politicians, but on both sides of the aisle, like the worst Democrats, like the most progressive, which I do think are harmful to the state of the union and culture, but also the Republicans just don't balance it out. They're literally there for like handouts and paychecks. And there's only say like it's 80, 20 imbalance in the state legislature, but really the political balance, at least in my County, it's like 45, 55. Now that's a huge gap, but that's just a 5% spread to meet in the middle again. Yep. And this is a state that voted for that had Reagan and then another guy, Pete Wilson, and then Schwarzenegger, which were all Republicans. But they knew how to do politics in a state that was starting to swing to the left towards Democrats. And I really do think, like, I, I have some friends on the, I would say on the hard far right that are just like moping, going, I got to get out of here. I'm like, chill. All these bills that you hear that they're in the state legislature. The majority of them, I would say 90%, aren't going to even be voted on. The ones that do make it through, like, I think there's a bill that, you know, your children can be taken from you if you don't affirm their gender. Try it. Let's try that. Come to my house, the Pearson household, and try and take my kid. Let's see that how that pans out. It's just so far from anyone's day-to-day reality. Yeah. I just remember growing up as a kid in the 80s, you would drive over from Simi Valley this is a bit of geography. Simi Valley, you drive over a mountain range, you come into the San Fernando Valley, huge, sprawling, several million people there. And you would see this brown cloud where you could not see the hills on bad days on the other side of the valley, about 10 to 15 miles away. Well, the environmentalists and the far left Democrats, they said, we're not okay with this. We're going to have these emission standards. And California has the tightest emission standards. But you know what? Darn it. Now you drive over into the San Fernando Valley, you do not see any brown haze. It's clean and it smells clean. And you go, oh, how bad was that? Wasn't a talking point or anything like that. So yeah, I do have a greater appreciation. Now I'm not trying to, they they won't nudge me off of my, my foundation of biblical principles. They've served me and lots of people fine for centuries or millennia, but you know, there are certain things where you go, well, let me just at least engage in this process of thinking critically instead of the latest talking point by insert your favorite conservative talking head here, that type of thing. Yeah. So no, that's good. Yeah. The environmental part is in Bloomington, we have at least, I think we have a couple super fun sites because Westinghouse just dumped PCBs into all the landfills here for years and years and years and years and years. And it's like, well, capitalism is not a suicide pact. The idea that as long as it's currently legal or you can get away with it, it's fine. I don't subscribe to that view at all. Yeah. And the same way that I don't, if I have a neighborhood and I have neighbors, I want to be an asset to them. I want to be somebody that they're glad to have in their community, mm-hmm. not somebody where I'm the person who's constantly a problem. Yeah. But on the business side, I also twinge every time I get a letter from the IRS and I'm like, couldn't you just leave me alone? <laughs> Here's an idea. I won't write you any letters and maybe you don't write me any. I don't think they'll take that deal. But uh, those are the I worst. I would like to propose it. Those are the worst envelopes when they show up. I go, oh, I have a sinking feeling. You open it up. It's like, we updated your address on file. It's like, you, you're just now telling me that? Like, why can't that be lumped <laughs> into with my tax returns? Oh, so, uh, yeah. It's yeah. a thing. Yeah. Anyway. 
This has been fun. Let's hop off and we'll do it again next week. Sounds good. All right, Andrew. Thanks, Jay. Have a great week.